So our, our guest speaker today has spent tons of energy, tons of time investing in and thinking about vulnerable kids and kids in trauma. He's written a bunch of books. He speaks in different, speaks all over the country. Um, there is one caveat. He is from Texas. But, you know, other than that, and then I was at his, uh, I was at one of the seminars he put on last night here at the church we hosted. I was just reminded of Jason's, his passion for the word and his insight into the scripture. So would you welcome Jason Johnson? broke the number one rule. I did it, man. I told you I wouldn't, and I did. I turned it off. Okay, now we're on. So it's good to be here with you, and it's good to be out of um, the part of Texas I live in, which has felt like the surface of the sun for the last four months, and it's just gorgeous here. And I'm convinced, I told some people last night, um, you know, the rumor around the country from you folks up here in the Pacific Northwest is that it rains here all the time. I've been here about two dozen times, and it's just absolutely sunny and gorgeous every time I'm here. And so I think it's a conspiracy that you're spreading this message to keep people from moving here and it getting too congested and overpopulated. But uh, I'm going to go back home and make sure everyone knows that you guys are just a, you're a bunch of liars. That's what's happening here. <laughs> You're trying to keep the good stuff for yourself, but it is always good to be here. Uh, I got to be at this church. Uh, I've, been, I've been trying to figure, I need to just go look it up maybe five or six years ago, uh, which feels like a lifetime ago. A lot's happened since then, and it's a, it's a joy to be back. Um, and so for those of you who weren't here with us five or six years ago, uh, let me introduce myself just uh, a little bit here uh, to you. This is the uh, female estrogen world that I come from. It's a lot of women. And so I spend a lot of time outside mowing the yard when it doesn't need to be mowed and washing cars when they don't really need to be washed. And my wife has a much harder job than I do and I'm grateful for her. The, on the far left is Marley. She came to live with us when she was three days old through foster care in the city of Houston. I was pastoring our church at the time, and the other girls were six, four, and two. And so we had six, four, two, and then newborn Marley. And my deal with God, when my wife said, I think now is the time for us to become foster parents, was simply this. Uh, okay, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do as long as it's uh, as manageable and small and easy as possible. And uh, so I kind of brokered this deal with God, so I thought that we agreed on that, hey, listen, I've, we've done a great job of keeping little girls alive. We've proved that we can do that three times. We practice on the first, first child syndrome. You know how you, you firstborns are, uh, you had it rough, but you're typically type A, high achieving, because you had to be. Your parents had no idea what they were doing. So uh, they were raising themselves while they were raising you. And then number two came along. By number three, we really got it down. Like, she's great. She's really just perfect, right? Uh, or so she thinks. Uh, so, hey, just give us another one of those. We've got all the stuff. We've got all the clothes. Way too many clothes. Uh, and so he did. And I thought that we were in agreement on this is how we're going to do things. It's going to be as easy as possible. Uh, only to discover that he was just obliging me in that moment, not necessarily agreeing with me. Uh, and so over the years, other little girls have come and gone. And they, they got progressively older and older and older. And then our story evolved into... Um, actually bringing moms into our home. Uh, and uh, not just older girls, but older girls with kids, right? So we've gone way outside of the box that I agreed to by this point. Uh, and um, we now have uh, little ones in our home, and uh, that's what I signed up for. But they're moms too. And so God and I had to have some conversation. And of course, he, um, 
he won the conversation because that's what he does. He always wins the conversation. Uh, but we had some moms come and go, and then this particular mom, Guiana, uh, moved in when she was 17. She was in foster care. She'd grown up in care since she was six, primarily up in Dallas. I'm down in the Houston area. And my wife was up late one night on Facebook, uh, the evil Facebook platform that's now banned in our home, because she became aware through a CASA worker, a court-appointed special advocate who was advocating for Guiana because they had spent the first week of her little boy, Jordan's life, sleeping on a caseworker's floor in Dallas because, uh, quite frankly, in the child welfare system, trying to find a home for a 17-year-old with a long story and a little baby is nearly impossible. And so uh, very, very uh, likely trajectory that a girl like this uh, um, uh, ages out of the system, 18 years old, is sent off on her own with very little resources, absolutely zero support structure, and um, immediately the, the cycles begin to repeat themselves. Uh, and so my wife became aware of the situation. I don't know what your marriage like is like or your home is like, but when my wife becomes aware of the situation, that's the equivalent of her having prayed about it and talked about it for a long, long, long time. Uh, and uh, then she just kind of informs me of what she has become aware of, and this is what we're doing. And uh, you know, this doesn't just apply to our foster care journey. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I walked into the kitchen. She's standing on a, on a chair, and she is peeling some wallpaper off of the wall that we had just put up a year ago because she had become aware of the situation, the fact that she no longer likes that wallpaper. And so it's done in her mind, and it's my job to help figure out how we're going to make it happen. And so they've been a part of our family for uh, many years now. Actually, I, I shouldn't even say they're a part of our family. We are a family, and this is an outdated picture. You'll see another little baby there in the mix, and then it's so outdated that there's a third baby, actually, in the story, and so we get to be grandma and grandpa to her little ones. We get, she calls us mom and dad. She asks us for money. We say no, you know, all the typical uh, stuff, uh, and she's not without her struggles by any means, by any means whatsoever. This is a girl that is incredibly bright, incredibly smart, and incredibly tough because she's had to be her entire life. Every day of her life has been survival. And when all that you are able to do each day is survive, each day, there's no capacity to dream about tomorrow because it's all about just getting through today and doing whatever I have to do to get through today, even if that means manipulating uh, contriving things, scheming things in order to get through today. And so she's incredibly smart and incredibly brilliant and incredibly tough. And she knows this, and we remind her of this often, even while she continues to struggle with some old patterns and ways of thinking that she was forced to live by, okay? The difference now is that she's not having to do any of those things alone. We're, we're now together. And here's what we've discovered along our journey. And this doesn't just apply to foster care. This just applies to probably every table, every organization, every entity, every aspect of what it means to care for and come alongside and support vulnerable people. That the difference between, quote, us and them uh, is, is so minute that there really is no line between us and them. It's just kind of all of us as humans together, doing the best we can with what we've got and who we've got. The primary difference that we have found, especially as we've had moms in our home, is, is, is not that they don't love their kids like we love ours. Of course they do. It's not that they don't have dreams for their kids and their lives like we do. Of course we do. We are all the same in that. The primary difference is this, is uh, when I struggle and fall, I don't fall very far, I don't fall very long, and I don't fall alone. 
So a couple of months ago, my wife came in and said uh, after dinner, um, hey, you want the good news or bad news? I was like, well, great, right? And there's all kinds of interesting research actually on the good news, bad news scenario. The recipient of the news always wants the bad news first so we can end with the good news. The deliverer of the news wants to give the good news first, start off on a good foot, right? Uh, and then they want to end with the bad news. And so I, as the recipient, I wanted the bad news first, and then let's end with the good news. And so my wife gave me the uh, good news first because that's the, recip the, the giver of, of the news. And so she said, good news is this, we have money to pay for it. You know, and now you understand why I want, <laughs> I want the bad news first, right? Well, gr great, what's coming next, right? Because whatever's about to come next completely uh, eliminates the good news that you just gave me, right? We have money to pay for what? Who did what now, what's broken now? She says, we have money to pay for it. Bad news is my car won't start. Said, okay, so we all know, best case scenario, it's just the battery. Please, God, just only be the battery, right? So take the battery out, run it up to the shop, the store, uh, tell the guys, I think it's the battery. They test it. Turns out it's the battery. Thank God. Buy a new battery. Go home. Put it in. It's about an hour of inconvenience and a couple hundred bucks, okay? Now, if Guiana's car doesn't start... It is a cascading effect of uh, disaster after disaster, and uh, it's a domino effect that ends potentially in a really, really, really bad place. For me, what is a minor inconvenience is for others what uh, becomes a significant catastrophe. So in the world of Guiana, if her car doesn't start, she can't get to her hourly job, drop her kids off at their daycare that is government subsidized, and if she misses too many days, then she loses that, uh, that benefit from the government. She can't make it to her hourly job where her manager, who has no business being a manager, by the way, you know, fires her, and just the cascading effect of what for me is a minor inconvenience and for her is potentially a, just a catastrophe. And the difference is this, is that when I fall, I don't fall far. There's no scenario in which my family's ever going to be homeless. Between all of our family, extended family, that we could convince to let us live with them, and even if they all disown us and say, no, you're not welcome here, we could probably convince the old lady that lives next door to let us live with her, because she loves our girls, right? There's no scenario in which we'll be homeless. There are, um, in, innumerable scenarios in which throughout Guyana's life, she has found herself on the brink of homelessness or just full on living in it, okay? The difference is the infrastructure of support underneath. When I fall, I don't fall far, long, or alone. When others around us fall, they don't stop falling and they fall alone. And I'm convinced that so many of the organizations and so many ways that this church rallies around vulnerable families and children and, and the communities that we live in, really what we are participating in, whether it's foster care, whether it's refugee support, whether it's crisis pregnancy, you name it, is we are coming alongside people and saying, we refuse to allow you to ever fall long, far, or alone again, ever, okay? We're all going to fall and stumble. The difference is you are no longer going to fall alone long or far ever again, as long as we're around. That's what we're talking about here this morning. 
I wanted you to watch this video. Uh, it's a great story I came across several years ago, and I've shown it uh, many, many times all over the place, maybe even the last time I was here. And it's a story out of Southern California, and I love these stories because mostly our news is filled with just bad news, right? I don't really even listen to the news much anymore. I'm mostly disconnected because it's just, it's just always a downer. But every once in a while, these bright spot stories come across the news, and my favorite bright spot stories are these stories of good Samaritans who are kind of stepping into things that uh, are heroic or are difficult, and they kind of cause all of us to ask ourselves the question, gosh, what would I do if I came across a scene like that, and how would I respond uh, if I were in a situation like that? My wife and I took our oldest to um, New York City earlier this summer, uh, just the three of us, and we're walking down the street, and I don't know why, my mind is just strange, but I'm thinking, man, what would happen, it, what would I do right now if somebody ran by and grabbed an old lady's purse and ran down the street of New York City? Would I be the kind of guy that chased them down and, you know, and was heroic? Like, I don't know why this is playing out in my head, right? Uh, but it is, right? What would I do in a situation like this? And I came across this story, and I think it's fascinating. You guys check this out. Moments before this car went up in flames, the driver was pulled out by a good Samaritan on his way to lunch at the Bollinger Road shopping plaza. Ram Harut Sunyan says there were dozens of bystanders, but no one stepped up. He's in the white shirt, and you can see him run up to the driver and pull and drag him to safety before paramedics and firefighters arrive. His friend Leo shot this video of the rescue and put it on YouTube. I was pretty surreal once we started. I love this story uh, because there's two characters. There's Aram, who's the one that ran towards the burning car, and afterwards a reporter asked him, why did you do it? And I love his matter-of-fact, simple answer. He basically said, um, somebody needed to and nobody was. It's really that simple, right? His answer was not, well, you know, I, I assessed the situation, I prayed about it, I consulted God about it, I did a Bible study about it, I attended a conference about conceptually what it would look like if I ran toward, he just said, nobody was and somebody needed to. But maybe my favorite character is his friend Leo. You notice what Leo's doing? His friend Leo stood nearby and recorded it and posted it on YouTube, right? I'm all about being Leo in that situation. Like, hey, John, there's a burning car. You should probably go do that, but I'm going to grab it on video, and we're going to post it on social media. We increasingly live in a world full of Leos. And a Leo is someone that wants to get just close enough to the fire to feel like they're actually a part of it and they're doing something, but stay far enough away so that they don't actually ever really get burned by it. And if we're not careful, we can become Leos in how we engage in the world around us in terms of how we live on mission and care for vulnerable people and impact our community. That will kind of get just close enough to satisfy our need to meet a need and feel good about ourselves, but stay far enough away that we don't ever actually feel the heat of it and get burned by it. We live in a world full of, uh, increasingly full of Leos, but what I'm fascinated by is the mentality of an Aram who would say, I'm going to run towards the very thing that most people are hardwired to run away from, to step away from, to isolate from, to avoid. I'm actually going to run to it on purpose, even at my own, to my own cost for the sake of somebody else. And the question would be why? Why would he do that? But maybe more importantly, why would we as a church body and as the people of God uh, live an entirely contradictory narrative to the world around us? where the world might be saying, just be the Leo, just get close enough, but stay far enough away, avoid, isolate, and insulate from hard things, uh, why would we actually be the kind of people that run towards the burning car? 
and we really don't even think about it or talk about it or pray about it very long. It's just what we do. It's that simple. Why would we do that? You know, there's a lot of what and how in the Christian life and in the church life, and we've even heard some of it this morning. Here's what we're going to do. Here's, here's the women's Bible study, and here's how you can be a part, and here's this, and here's that. And all of that is good, but it's important for us to step back every once in a while and get back to the heart of why. Why do we do what we do? And that's what I want us to talk about here this morning. There's all kinds of opportunities out in the lobby for you to discover the what and the how. What we're going to talk about here in this room this morning is why. Why would we be the kind of people that run towards and move towards the very thing that the world around us is saying to avoid, isolate, and insulate from? The best way I know how for us to get back to the essence of why uh, is to look in Scripture. And so we're going to be in Romans chapter 5 for the most part. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And if not, we'll have everything that you need on the screen. But uh, Romans chapter 5, not unlike several other places in the New Testament, it does a really beautiful job of unpacking the full essence of what the gospel is. And the word gospel is essentially a word that means good news. This is the good news of what we celebrate about what Jesus has done for us. And in a very beautiful, succinct way, Romans chapter 5 unpacks kind of the full essence of the implications of the gospel in our life. As Jesus steps into our story, as he has moved towards us, uh, no part of who we are has gone unaffected or untouched or unimpacted by his moving towards us. And what we're going to see in Romans chapter 5 is that it affects our past, it affects our present, and it affects our future. And so increasingly, we want to be the kind of people that move towards hard places and that run towards the burning car. But before we are even able to do that, we increasingly want to be the kind of people that deeply celebrate and internalize and integrate the beauty of the work of Jesus on our behalf in our own lives. Because what we're going to find is that that becomes the basis and the foundation of why. Why would we do for others well, ultimately, because of what we celebrate that Jesus has done for us. Our doing for others is driven by and is rooted by and is sustained by what Jesus has done for us. And so we're going to actually spend most of our time there. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about what we do for others. There are incredible organizations out there that can help you find your lane and gain that clarity. We're going to spend most of our time in here talking about what Jesus has done for us. Because that's ultimately what catalyzes us and fuels us to even consider what we might be able to do for others. So Romans chapter 5 says, since we have been justified, or another translation might say, therefore we have been justified through faith. And uh, an old Sunday school moniker is anytime you see the word therefore or since, uh, it's therefore something. So what happened right before that? Well, Romans chapter 4 talks about how Abraham was justified by faith. He believed God even in circumstances that seemed impossible. And his belief in God was credit to him as righteousness. That, that his belief, his faith in God is what credited to him righteousness. It wasn't by works. It was simply by believing God in situations where it seemed that there was no hope and there was no way. But I choose to believe God, and that is credited to Abraham as righteousness. And so now Paul is saying in Romans 5, therefore, or since, 
we have been justified through that same faith. We are justified by placing our belief in the work of, of God on our behalf. Not about our works, not about uh, how good we can be or, or what we can attain, but simply by placing our faith in Jesus. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And so right here on one slide in just a few simple sentences, maybe even just a couple of sentences, we see kind of the fullness of the essence of the implications of the gospel in our life. And so let's pick it apart a little bit. In the first part, Paul begins to talk about the, pat, the effects that the gospel has on our past. It says, since we have been justified through faith, we have been. This is past tense language. And so the gospel has something to say about and something to do with our past. Later on in Romans 5, Paul unpacks it a little bit more. He says, since we've been justified through faith, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, when we were, past tense, Christ died, past tense, for the ungodly. He demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the first part of our story that is impacted uh, by the work of Jesus on our behalf is our past. And over and over in scripture, you're going to see it said in a number of different ways, but Jesus enters into our story, he lays his life down for us, and something significantly changes about our past. And so we could say it this way, our new story is this, is that our past has been redeemed. Our past has been redeemed. We were once dead, and now because of Jesus, we are alive. We were once blind, and now we can see. By faith, the work of Jesus has entered into our story and changed our relationship with our past. And why do we say it that, that way? Because what has not happened is Jesus has entered our story and um, eliminated our past, made us forget our past. That would be nice. There are things in our past that maybe we have done or have been done to us that we would just prefer if you could just erase all of that and wipe all of that from my memory and we can just move on. What God does not do is say, here's Jesus, he's entering into your story and let's just pretend like nothing up to this point has ever happened. It would be nice, but that's not what happened. And so it's gotta be something different. Jesus steps into our story and he redeems our past. He doesn't erase it, he doesn't eliminate it. And so what's happening in our, in our interaction and the work of Jesus and the gospel in our lives is that we are now given the opportunity to have a new relationship with our past. Many of us have very dysfunctional relationships with our past. Okay, they are still sources of shame. They are sources of condemnation. But in Romans chapter 8, it says, therefore, uh, those who are in Christ have been set free from the law of sin. We have been set free from the condemnation. Our past is no longer a source of condemnation. It's now a platform of celebration. I can have a new relationship with the things I've done and the things done to me. They are no longer a source of condemnation. They're now a platform of celebration because I can say I was once this and now I am this because of the work of Jesus. I was once this and now I'm this because of the work of Jesus. I was once dead and now I'm alive. It's not a platform of condemnation. It is a it is a pipeline of celebration of the work of Jesus because I was once this and now I am this and it's only because of the work of Jesus. So not long after Guiana moved into our home, uh, we began to discover more about her past. And we began to discover that this girl has had a really hard, long, difficult past and it's, it is born out of generational cycles. 
deep-seated generational cycles, as is most of the stories of families that we interact with who are the most vulnerable and at risk in our communities. But she knocks on our bedroom door late one night as we're winding down for the day, and she asks the question that uh, no simple, short conversation ever follows. She says, can we talk? Right? There's not, never in the history of humanity a short, easy conversation that follows that question, right? So she says, can we talk? And I'll confess, my immediate thought was, oh, God, not right now. Sure, come on in. What's on your mind, right? And so she says, hey, I've been thinking about what I want to be when I grow up. This is an almost 18-year-old girl, probably for the first time dreaming about her future. She says, I'm thinking about what I want to be when I grow up. I think I want to go to uh, get my social work degree so that I can be a caseworker for kids in foster care. Because all I ever had my whole life was bad ones, and they were supposed to make it better for me, and they didn't. And I want to be a good caseworker, a social worker for kids like me. We were able to tell Guiana, how, how unfortunate is it that the world even needs that kind of job? But how beautiful would it be for you to be in that position where you're able to look a kid in the, in the eye who's just had a really, really horrible day and be able to say to them, I'm here with you, I'm for you, I get you, you and I are the same. What struck us that night is that she was beginning to dream about her future, but more so than just dreaming about her future, she was dreaming about her future because of her past. Okay. Hey, I've had a really hard, horrible life. And maybe, maybe there's a way that I can use the past for good moving forward. And to that, we would say yes and amen. If we don't believe that Jesus has the capacity to change our relationship with our past, then I'm not sure how we can actually believe the same to be true for anyone that we're trying to serve and help. So to the extent that I'm able to believe that for her is only rooted in my capacity to believe it for myself that my past has been redeemed and I can have a new relationship with my past and because of that, it compels me to help others discover the same can be true for them. This is what theologians might call the doctrine of incarnation, this idea that Jesus steps into our story, he wraps himself up in our brokenness, even while we were still sinners, Christ wrapped himself up in our condemnation and he was broken by our brokenness so that we don't have to be broken anymore. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, which, by the way, is in two months. How great is that? Yeah? But it's true all the time. This idea that God would step out of his glory, wrap himself up in humanity, be broken by our brokenness so that we don't have to be broken anymore. We raise our hands in worship to a God that says, I see you in your brokenness and the heart of your past. And what I'm going to do is step into that, wrap myself up in it, be broken by it so that you can begin to experience healing and freedom from it. And we raise our hands and worship to a God that's done that for us. And we refuse to be the kind of people that use those same hands to push the broken and the heart of others away. Just like Jesus has stepped into our story and wrapped himself up in it, so too we want to step into the stories of others and be wrapped up in it as well. Be broken by their stories. Not just get close enough to the fire that we feel like we're apart, but stay far enough away that we never feel the heat but be the kind of people that wrap ourselves up in the stories of other people, be broken by their brokenness so that they can begin to experience healing and freedom just like we have in Jesus. It's as if God at Christmas says, I see you where you are and I'm coming after you. I see you where you are and I'm coming after you. 
This is the posture in which we live. Here's our Christmas verse, Matthew chapter 1, that uh, his name will be Emmanuel, which is God is with us. He's right here among us. He's not over there. He's not out there. He's not at a distance, but he's literally right here, wrapped up in our flesh, living out our humanity, being broken in his body so that we don't have to be broken anymore. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That phrase dwelling among us literally means tabernacled among us. Or uh, a more modern translation might say uh, that he, he wrapped himself up in bodily form and he built a home among us. He moved into our neighborhood and he stayed. It's this idea that God moves towards us. He, he interjects himself into our story and then he says, I'm not going anywhere. You're stuck with me forever. When Guiana moved in, the first night she moved in, we said, listen, we don't know how all this is going to play out. But what we do want you to know is this, is that no matter what, you are stuck with us forever. And she has spent the, five, the last five to six years testing that. Okay? You're stuck with us forever. Oh, yeah, well, what about this? Yep, we're still here. Now, the implications of that, if I can be honest, is, hey, you're stuck with us forever. But that doubles back on us as, ugh, we're stuck forever with her too. And life would just be a lot easier if we didn't do hard things. But that's a boring life that nobody wants to live. And we refuse to be the kind of people that say, Jesus, thank you that I'm stuck with you forever. But I refuse to be stuck with other people. We refuse to be those kinds of people and we refuse to be that kind of church. God sees hard places and broken people. He moves towards them and not away from them. You cannot read the story of scripture and get away from this idea for very long. It is on every page. It is in every story. This is, in my opinion, the predominant narrative of all of scripture. You cannot get away from it. God is constantly moving towards hard places and broken people, not away from them. And this flies directly in the face of the cultural narrative in which we live, which says, avoid and isolate from anything that's difficult or hard. Just hold the phone and record it while other people run towards it. God moves towards hard places and broken people and not away from them. And if we had time, we could all go around the room and we could share our own story of how this has been true in our lives. But we don't, so we have to move on. So the first part of our story is our past has been redeemed. And then Paul continues. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. That's a lot of words, but it's present tense language. We right now have peace with God. We have right now gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Paul continues to expound on that later in Romans 5. He says, we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. This is a new present reality that we live in. Our past has been redeemed and our present reality has been shifted. And here's what that means, is that we never have to worry about what God thinks about us. We live in this constant state of security. We never have to question. We never have to wonder, is God mad at me? Is he angry with me? Is he going to take care of me? Is he going to provide for me? We don't live in any instability now. We live in absolute security knowing that we are fully loved and fully accepted by him. That we have access to him by grace. We have been reconciled to him. There is never a moment where we have to wonder whether or not God is going to be good to us. 
We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to fight our way through each day. We don't have to scratch and claw. We don't have to survive each day. We can actually thrive each day knowing that we are fully loved and fully cared for by God. We don't have to worry about what God thinks of us anymore. And for, for us to step into the lives and into the stories of the, of the most vulnerable and at risk around us and say, hey, it doesn't always have to be this way. Your past can actually drive you forward into really beautiful, profound places. It's going to be hard, but we're going to do it together. And as we walk that journey and that path, we're going to be right next to you doing this together. And you don't have to worry about whether or not you're loved or cared for. or You don't have to fight and claw and scratch your way. You don't have to survive each day. You can just rest in knowing that you are cared for and loved. You're stuck with us forever, whether you like it or not. This is our new present reality with God, that we don't have to wonder what he thinks about us. And then Paul continues. He says, and now we boast in the hope of the glory of God. This is future tense language. Our past has been redeemed, our present has been shifted, and now something has changed about our future. He expounds on this even more later on in the chapter. He says, since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved in the future from God's wrath through him? There is a future salvation that's coming, but a present experience of that salvation right now. It's an already not yet we have already been set free. We have already been saved. We have already been given the victory over the presence and the power of sin. And yet we are also awaiting a day in which that is finally and fully realized. It's already not yet. We don't live for victory today. We live from a future victory that has been guaranteed to us. When we read in scripture about what's to come in our future, we see a couple of parallel paths. The first one is this, this idea that glory is coming, the hope of glory. And we really like that message in scripture that sells a lot of books at, at the Christian bookstore. They don't even exist anymore. On Amazon, the Christian department of Amazon, right? It sells a lot of really great books and it fills a lot of really great seats in churches. That glory is coming and victory is yours and we are overcomers. And we like that, it's true. And we see it all throughout scripture. Glory is coming, but it is only as true and as beautiful as is the second theme that is running throughout scripture about our future that runs parallel to it and is intricately tied to it, but is not nearly as exciting as the first one. The first one is that glory is coming. The second predominant message about what's to come in our future that runs parallel to that glory is this. It's going to be hard and it's going to become increasingly hard along the way. But glory is coming. This is why these two parallel truths are so important, that they are not mutually exclusive and separate, but they are together. It's going to get hard and harder and harder. I don't think it surprises God at all. Um, I don't think that our current socio and political uh, climate in our country especially the part of the country that you guys live in, I don't think it surprises him at all. As a matter of fact, I think if he were here with us, he would say this, this is exactly what I told you was going to happen. It's going to become increasingly difficult to live for me. Not only will uh, the culture and the government around you um, stand in opposition to you, but they will actively work against you to suppress you but glory is coming. I win in the end. 
There is a future hope that we are experiencing now and also working towards. And it's going to become increasingly difficult. And we're going to increasingly live in a culture that is hostile to the things of God. But glory is coming. So our future has been altered. We don't have to be afraid of what's to come anymore. And so Guiana knocks on our door that night and she says, I'm starting to think about what I want to be when I grow up. And maybe for the very first time in her life, she's had a little bit of space to not be afraid of tomorrow, but to actually be excited for tomorrow. When all that you've got is uh, the opportunity to survive each day, there is no thought of tomorrow. Why dream about tomorrow? As a matter of fact, um, neuroscientists and, and, and the therapeutic world, they'll tell you this, that trauma destroys the brain's capacity to dream or imagine. And so an illustration of that might be, let's say you're at a, a kid's birthday party and a little boy has a near drowning experience. You pull that little boy out of the pool, you help him catch his breath, collect himself, and you say, all right, buddy, you ready to get back in the water? And that little kid is already starting to think, I can't imagine getting back in that water right now. Because that traumatic experience has begun to teach his brain, don't you dare even dream or imagine. And then in order to protect himself over the years, he's going to grow up and never getting back in the water, but also convincing himself that he doesn't even like swimming. And so years later, somebody's going to say, do you want to go swimming? And he's going to say, I don't really like swimming. But what we know is true is you love swimming. Trauma just destroyed your capacity to ever dream or imagine what it would be like to get in the water again. When, when children and families swim in the stream of trauma and survival, there is zero capacity to dream about and to imagine what tomorrow might be. And the hope of the gospel for us is this, is that it gives us space and capacity and freedom to actually look forward to what's coming and we don't have to be afraid about what's coming. So we step into and get involved in the lives of the most vulnerable and at risk around us to create space and margin in which they can actually perhaps begin to believe that there's hope, that there's hope. And they can begin to dream about tomorrow. We don't have to be afraid of what's to come. For the sake of time, we'll jump forward. The implications for us are clear. That we all celebrate the same gospel, but we don't demonstrate that gospel in the same way. And for some of you this morning, it really just needs to end here. That perhaps for you, this is the first time you've actually heard uh, the essence of the gospel unpacked for you. And you're still kind of back on that whole past relationship thing. You're like, can we go back there and just hang out there for a while? Because that's where I need Jesus to redeem me and to step in. And if that's you, then we'd say... That's what you need this morning, is you need the space to respond to the call of God on your life in this moment uh, to accept the gospel is true and to give your life to Jesus. And there's going to be people here that can help you talk through that and walk through that. But for all of us, the implications are, are clear. We all celebrate that same gospel. But the applications of that are broad and diverse and as unique as each individual person in this room. One of my favorite stories to share is the story of a guy I met in Kansas City at a very large foster parent appreciation dinner, and uh, it was hosted at a church uh, that had zero foster families in the church. It was an older downtown Baptist church, average age member was probably 113 years old. You know that kind of church, right? <laughs> Loving church, beautiful building, 
zero families in their church that were foster families, but they said, we've got space and we have people that want to serve, and so we're going to open up our space and we're going to host this, this amazing event for families in our city that are caring for kids from hard places. A couple hundred families in the room, and it was catered that night by a barbecue restaurant. I didn't know at the time that the owner of the restaurant was there, but he came up to me afterwards uh, and he introduced himself as the owner of the best barbecue restaurant in Kansas City. Now, if you've never been to Kansas City, they talk about two things, barbecue and Patrick Mahomes. That's it. Two things that I don't really know much about. I'm not a big football guy, not a big barbecue guy, even though I'm from Texas. I know, I get it. I break all the stereotypes that you people have in your head. But remember, I don't trust you anyway because you lie about weather stuff. So that's... <laughs> so this guy, remember 80s, early 90s uh, kids, uh, Transformers, okay? They were they would turn into like... Uh, things that could walk around, like not humans, but you know, and then like machines. Uh, I'm pretty sure I met a real life transformer that night because this guy was like a human smoke pit. He looked like a smoke pit, smelled like a smoke pit, talked like a smoke pit, just a huge mass of a man. And I'm pretty sure he was the actual smoke pit that he smoked his meat in the night before. And then he transformed into a human and now I'm talking to him. And he comes up to me and he says, in a very towering smoke pit kind of way, hey bud, and I don't like when people call me bud. Uh, but when smoke pit guy calls you bud, you just say, yes, sir. Uh, he said, I'm not bringing a kid into my home. And I didn't hear him for the next 15 seconds or so because in my head, I'm actually saying to myself, thank God, please don't ever bring a child into your home. You're a terrifying human being. I don't even like to be this close to you, okay? So then I kind of come back to reality and I hear him say that I own the best barbecue restaurant in Kansas City. We've told organizations and, and churches that anytime there's a function like this or a family brings a new placement into their home, call us and we're gonna deliver the best barbecue in Kansas City for free. So here's a guy who says, I know what I can't do, but I know what I can do. And I'm gonna do that really, really, really well. And to that I would say yes and amen. Romans chapter 12 says this, as in one body we have many members, the members don't all have the same function. Though we are many, we are one body, and I love this, we are individually members of one another. We are individually members of one another. The barbecue guy that night is intricately connected to the families in the room that are bringing children into their home. This is how the body of Christ works. Hey, you do what you do, and I'm gonna do what I do, and we're gonna do that together, and that's a body. We're ears, eyes, hands, feet, toes. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us, so let us use them. The big idea here is this, is that everyone can do something. Everyone can do something. The implications of the gospel are clear. We all celebrate the same gospel, but the applications of that gospel are wide and diverse. And so the question for us here this morning is, what is my something? What is my something? It can be a family, a vulnerable family, a foster family, a, a biological family, a kinship family, an adoptive family, the struggling neighbors across the streets, perhaps, from where you live. Anybody could fit into this circle, and then a bunch of others of us are going to wrap around them and say, that might not be what we're doing, but we're going to find what our something is, and we're going to do it together for their sake. Because this is what the body of Christ does, and this is what this church is already doing. You heard them talk about it, this monthly gathering and rhythm of doing this for families. And so our encouragement to you here this morning, our challenge to you here this morning is first this, that we together collectively and individually would increasingly become deep celebrators of the work of Jesus on our behalf. And that we would just relish in the implications 
of what his work on our behalf means for our past, present, and future. And then we would lift our eyes up from that and we would look around us and we would consider what is the unique application of that for me into the lives of those around me? How can I move towards and not away from? How can I wrap myself up in the stories of others so that on some level and in some way they too can begin to experience this past, present, and future hope that I have found in Jesus? So what is my something? That's the question that we leave with you here this morning. And there are a whole host of people available to you here today to have conversations with you, to help you maybe begin to formulate some ideas of what that can look like. So let me pray for us. Father, I do ask that your Holy Spirit would give us clarity for what that something might be. And then even more than that, Father, as we increasingly gain clarity into what our something might be, I pray for the courage to do it. We will talk ourselves out of it. We will convince ourselves that we're not qualified. We will come up with all the reasons why we can't right now. And so I pray that your spirit would cut through all of that, give us the clarity that we need and the courage that we need to obey. It is in your name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.